Always a comedian. David deals with a famine. Um, it's actually a little bit more than David dealing with a famine, but that's how it begins. And just uh, it turns out to be a little bit more than just the average everyday famine that a king would have to deal with. So um, that's all I'm going to give you as a hint for the lesson for today. So I want to just kind of dive in starting from there. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Gabriel, will you open us in prayer? So Kid Samuel chapter 21, we're going to start with verse 1 to set the stage. Jana, go ahead. So God sends a famine to Israel. And there was a famine in the land for three years. David, being very perceptive, thinks that this isn't really a normal thing. And so he goes to God to inquire the Lord as to why this is going on. This seems to be out of the ordinary. It seems to be maybe something that God is bringing on the land for a reason. And he'd like to know why. So he inquires of the Lord. And the Lord says, indeed, there is a reason why this is happening. There's a very good reason why. It's because of Saul's bloodthirsty house. Now, this is quite a ways down the line from when Saul was ruling, but this is what God is saying is the reason for the famine, that Saul's bloodthirsty house. And the reason it was is because he killed the Gibeonites. And because he did this, God is bringing a famine on the land to punish the land. Now, we don't have a record of when Saul did kill the Gibeonites, but... We know that God says Saul did this, and so we know that it's true that it happened. It's just it's not recorded in Scripture for us, so we don't know exactly when this happened during Saul's reign, why he did it, how he did it, or any details of it. We just know that it did happen. So this is why the reason of the famine. So David now knows the explanation why this is happening, why God has brought this upon the land. And now David, as king, is going to try to do something about this because... As a good king, he wants to fix the problem. So let's read verses 2 through 4. Miriam. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? What shall I and with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We have, we will have no gold or silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, say, Whatever you say, I will do. So David calls the Gibeonites.
so he wants to speak with them. Now, the, he gives a little background to the Gibeonites in case you have forgotten who they were. They're remnants of the Amorites. Well, who are the Amorites? The Amorites were people that dwelt in the land of Israel before Israel dwelt in the land of Israel. They're one of the nations that God said, when you go in there, you're going to go in there and just defeat the Amorites and drive them out of the nation. You're going to kill them all. You're going to wipe them out. You're going to destroy them. Well, why weren't the Gibeonites destroyed? Well, it goes on to say in this passage, the children of Israel swore protection to them. When did they do that? Well, we see this in Joshua chapter 9. Now, if you go down a little bit, I, I gave you a portion of that in your notes. Let's go ahead and read that. Who would like to read that? Nathan. children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live. Let wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And so... So if you remember the story, the Gibeonites, they saw what Israel was doing to all the other nations that were in the land, all these powerful nations, and Israel was having these great victories. And they got a little scared, and so they came up with a plan that we're going to pretend to be travelers from a far country. We're going to get old moldy bread. We're going to get old worn-out wineskins. We're going to get shoes that look like they've been walked on for long, long distances. And we're going to come and pretend that we came from a long distance, and we're going to make a treaty with Israel. And Israel's going to think that we've journeyed from a long way, and they're going to make a treaty with us, and then they won't be able to attack us. Well, Israel took everything at face value and said, yeah, these guys look like they came from a long way. Let's make a treaty with them without inquiring of God who they were. And they swore by the Lord that, okay, we're not going to hurt you. You guys are going to be friends with us. And then, as we saw in the passage here later on, they came to the realization that these guys were actually living in the land here. And so they had made this vow by the Lord that we wouldn't kill them, and they had to live by it. Now, if you go on reading in verses 21 and following, they said, okay, we're going to make them do all the dirty jobs, or we're going to make them the woodcutters, we're going to make them do basically all the slave jobs for us. You'll live, but you're going to work hard for us. You're going to be our water carriers, you're going to be our woodcutters, you're going to be the people that do all the hard work for us. So, yeah, you'll live, but you're going to do the hard work. I think at that point, the Gibeonites were like, okay, fine, but we get to live, you're not, you're not going to kill us off. We'll take that. So... So they were kind of okay, okay for that. So, so that's kind of the background of who they were. Now Saul sought to kill them. And it says in this passage, he sought to kill them in a zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And maybe this was Saul's idea, because remember at the time of Saul, and even at the time of David, there's still some of these nations that are still in the land. Israel never fully conquered the land. They never fully defeated all these nations. And so maybe Saul, at some point in time, was... Just like, I'm going to finish this up, what God wanted us to do when we came in here. And he saw the Gibeonites and said, we've got to wipe these people out, forgetting or ignoring perhaps the vow that God 
or that the people made before God to the Gibeonites. And so he ended up attacking them, and he sought to kill them. And it says, in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah, so and maybe in his desire to cleanse the land of all these foreign nations, uh, he went ahead and attacked them anyway. And so David brings the Gibeonites before him, and he asks them for what they would want for atonement. What would you do so that you would bless the inheritance of the Lord? What can we do to make it right, basically? Uh, I think that's sometimes kind of a dangerous thing to ask them, what, what do you want us to do? Um, but this is what David does here. He asks them, what, what would be a fair thing to you? What's the fair judgment for you? Now, the Gibeonites don't answer with what they want. They add, answer with what they don't want. Uh, basically, they say, we don't want any money. We don't want any silver and gold from Saul or his family. Uh, you can't pass off for this. Uh, that's not going to help. And they interestingly say, we don't want you to kill any man in Israel for us. I think the idea is not to kill any random person in Israel for us. So, you know, we don't want anybody sacrificed in all of Israel. I think they're thinking very specifically here, and we'll see that in a second, as they make their demands of David, what he can do to atone for what happened to them. So the idea that no death for any man in Israel is kind of, don't just give us anybody in Israel to die for the sins of Saul. And so David's like, okay, you told me what you don't want. What can I do to make atonement? I'm asking you here. So verses 5 through 7, Matthew. So the Gibeonites asked for a judgment here. And their judgment against the man who plotted to kill them against Saul is to let seven of his descendants be delivered to them. And that these seven descendants, that they're going to hang them. And where we're going to hang them is we're going to hang them in Saul's hometown. Because we're going to make a point here. So they, they're, this is what they're, they want to do in order to make atonement. Now, to our sensibilities, this seems maybe a little bit harsh. Seven of Saul's descendants to die for what Saul did. Uh, but we're going to see later that God accepts this, actually, as a fair compensation for what Saul did. And so, um, and we'll see in a second that David's going to accept that also, that, okay, this, this is a fair judgment for what Saul did to you. And we've got to remember that this isn't an age of grace here. This is an age of law. This is the Old Testament. And Saul, who knows how many people Saul killed of the Gibeonites, they're asking for just seven of Saul's descendants back. So um, they're asking for what David considers a fair judgment here. Now, David's going to give them some, but he's going to spare Mephibosheth. Uh, and he's going to spare Mephibosheth because he made an oath with Jonathan, and he's going to keep that oath. So he's not going to break his oath with Jonathan because of this other oath between the Gibeonites. So he's going to find seven other men that are of Saul's descendants that aren't Mephibosheth. And this passage makes that clear that David 
uh, does that. And you're going to see in a second it's a little confusing because there's going to be another guy named Mephibosheth who actually gets chosen who's not Jonathan's Mephibosheth. So, yeah. The popular name, which is surprising because I don't know any personally. So, um, yeah. So verses 8 and 9. Jonathan, go ahead. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, who she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Israel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on a hill before the Lord. So they all fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. So Saul's descendants here are killed. And so the people are chosen. So the first two are Armani, not the suit maker, but another guy, and Mephibosheth. And these are the sons of Rizpah. And Rizpah was one of Saul's concubines. Um, And so there are two sons of uh, this Rizpah. And then five sons of, and here the text says Michal, and I'm going to discuss that in a second, the daughter of Saul. Um, and so five sons who are not named. And I'm, going to, I, I'm thinking this isn't Michal, because who's Michal? Who, David's wife who can't have kids, right. And the pastor that tells us that David's wife didn't have any kids was in 2 Samuel 6, verse 23. It says that, remember, she was... Uh, um, annoyed with David for dancing before the Lord and kind of fed up with him and she was basically insulting David and David said, you know, first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship the Lord how I want to worship the Lord. And second of all, I'm kind of the king, so I'm going to do what I, I'm going to do. And then it says after that that she never bore any children to David. So it would be hard for her to have five sons to be given over to the Gibeonites to be killed if she didn't bore any children. Um, there is a textual variant in this where it, this might be Mirab. Now, who's Mirab? Nobody remembers who Mirab is? It's the daughter of Saul. Which daughter of Saul? Which? Go to 1 Samuel chapter 18 if you have your Bibles. We would like to read verses 17 through 19. Okay, go ahead, Gabriel. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Mira. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight for the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines so David said to Saul, Who am I? With my life were my father's family in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king. But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Moabite, as a wife. Okay, so... 
this was the variant that this is the other name that's given here. And this seems to make some kind of sense here that maybe David would pick five of her sons, considering that she was originally supposed to be his wife, and she was given to another person. So it's a possibility. I, I think that this is probably more right, uh, especially it, it really doesn't seem it can be Michal because she didn't have any kids. So, and also David would be given over his grandkids to be killed for Saul's sake, which also doesn't really make a lot of sense considering how David feels about even his own son getting killed. Um, I don't see that really happening, so... Yes. Um, I think it might it could be possible. I don't think it would be likely. Um, uh, and and the reason I don't think it would be likely is. Uh, time and also, you know, once you have children with a person and then you take the wife away, then that you, you have complications with the children. And so I think that David being able to have her as a wife after this guy, I, I think there wouldn't be children in a way because I, I think that, you know what I mean, it, there would be family issues then. So... That would be my guess. I don't. I don't think she would have there. Maybe. He's trying to some maybe, he's, maybe. Maybe. So, but I. I. I think that's that's kind of a outside possibility. Um, yeah. No children. Yeah. So that that's that's where I would probably land on too. That she probably has no children at all. Um, so that's why that's why I, I my thought is that it's this Miriam, uh, Saul's oldest daughter, who was supposed to be given to David, who was not, and um, you know I, I think that David doesn't have any problems, so to speak, to say okay, five of her sons are going to be chosen here, um, and so that's my guess. And again, I, I don't know for certain, but I'm trying to figure out the passage because I don't think it can be Mikhail in the passage here. So, um, anyway, to move on, so you can you can think what you want of the passage there, but I think that's a good explanation. Uh, letter B here: The men were hanged. Uh, they were hanged on a hill before the Lord, and it was at the beginning of the barley harvest. So, um, so we're going to see that's important as it gives us a time frame a little bit later on at the beginning of the barley harvest. So they were hanged there. Um, now, Rizpah was mentioned here in this passage as two of her sons were two of the people hanged. We're going to see her response here in this next section here. So verses 10 and 11. I need a reader. Okay, let me go ahead. Now, Beast of the field by night, being the 
So I have Ritzva watches over the bodies. Now, it took me a while to figure out why this verse was in here, because when I first read it, it was kind of like, okay, this is an interesting verse. What does this mean? Well, spreading sackcloth over the rock sounds like somebody's putting like a, a sheet on a, a rock, right? Well, I think that the sackcloth is, this is probably a tent. I think she probably built a tent over the bodies, the rock being the hill where they were hanged. And what it seems like has happened in this passage is the Gibeonites, being non-Israelites, they hang the bodies and they left them hanging there. They did not take them down because they're not showing any respect for Saul's descendants. And so they're still hanging there. So Ritzpah, instead of letting the birds and the animals get to them, she's going to build a tent over the bodies to protect them. And then she's going to stay there and she's going to guard off from the birds and the scavengers and the animals from getting in there. And that's what she's actually doing. That's what it means when she's taking the sackcloth here is that she's building some kind of covering or tent over the bodies and keeping all the animals away. And that's, uh, she's made that her duty to protect the bodies of her two sons and then these other five men who were hanged there that are still there hanging. Um, and part of the reason, uh, one of the commentators I read said that this is, uh, the Gibeonites were probably, some of their pagan rituals, they're, they're probably something to do with appeasing their gods that they're leaving the bodies there for the gods. And so that's why they didn't take them down or whatever. And there may be some of that going on here also. Um, but she's trying to show respect even for these bodies and, and trying to protect them from the animals scavenging them. So she's, she's there. And then this was done from the harvest. Remember, this, they were hanging at the beginning of the harvest, so the time when the rains came. Now, part of the thought of this famine is maybe this famine was happening because there wasn't a lot of rain. Um, and so maybe the sign when these rains are coming is that this is the end of the famine also, that God is now blessing the land by giving the land rain. Um, and then there's also a thought that these Gibeonites who were worshiping these pagan gods were leaving the bodies up there until it rained because they're, they're wanting the famine then too. And maybe this is their sacrifice and they're waiting for the rains to come. So this might be why she is out here from the time of the harvest until it actually started raining again because they're waiting for, everybody's waiting for something to happen. Everybody's waiting for this famine to end, waiting for the rains to come so that they can start producing food again. Gabriel. The Gibeonites. Yes, that's the underlying reason, yes. So it's not because Israel made a covenant with it? No. No, God's, God's actually, God actually is honoring that covenant. Okay. Now, the Israelites shouldn't have made that covenant. I'll make that point later. Um, they weren't supposed to, but, but they did. And God said, okay, you made the covenant. You need to honor that. And yeah. the famine is because Saul broke that covenant. That Israel made with the Gibeonites. So God was expecting them to uphold what they said they were going to do. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and so then, yeah, so she's, she's here at this tent um, day and night, chasing off the birds, chasing off the animals. Um, and David, 
was told that this was going on. And we're not told that David has really done anything with this other than we'll see that later on David's going to take care of the dead bodies. And um, there's still a respect that David has for the dead. And we're going to see there's even a respect David still has for Saul. Again, even after all Saul did to him, um, David still continues to show respect for Saul for his position as the Lord's anointed as the one who was a king over Israel before him, that David still honors that. So um, let's read that section, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 21, verses 12 through 14. Do we have a reader? Joanna. So David buries Saul and his descendants. And so at this point, David gathers Saul's and Jonathan's bones, and they're still, their bones are still with the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And if we remember the story, remember the Philistines uh, found the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, uh, they cut off their heads and, and hung their bodies. Um, the heads were recovered and buried, but the bodies were left with the Philistines. And the Philistines um, then were going to just hang them and show them off as trophies. And the men of Jabesh Gilead went by night, and they, they stole back the bodies. And apparently they stayed in Jabesh Gilead all this time. Uh, so when so Saul was killed in Gilboa, that's what happened. So David, at this point, says, well, they need to be taken back to their rightful place. They need to go back to his family burial ground. So David gathers the bones of Saul and David. He also gathers, at this point, he talks about the bones of uh, those who were hanged. Um, I assume this means the whole bodies, because I can't imagine at this point they're, they're down to bones yet. But... Um, so he, he gathers them all, and then it says he buried Saul and Jonathan in his country um, in the tomb of Kish and Zalia of Benjamin, so at his hometown in his father's tomb. And again, it's kind of inferred here that the other men would have been buried at least in their hometown if they had their own tombs or, or you know, someplace nearby where they were from, because that seemed to be what David was doing here, was burying the people where they belonged. And in all this, this says that everybody did what David commanded. And at this point, we get the interesting last phrase there. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. What was the prayer for the land? That the famine would end. That was just what this whole point of the story was about, right? That David was trying to end this famine because of what Saul had did. So through all this, through this whole actions of David making this deal with the Gibeonites and saying, what do you want? And the Gibeonites saying, we want these seven men. We want to hang them. We want to hang them in Saul's hometown. They, they're going to pay for Saul's uh, sin against us. 
and all this happening, and then David honoring Jonathan and David, bringing them back to their tombs and bringing these men back and burying them right away. This God is appeased by this, and he ends the famine, and the people now start to have food again. And so, um, you know, David here seeks to do what's right. He seeks to fix the situation. He seeks to make uh, restitution with the Gibeonites in order to do what's right, to please God, to make things right with them. And God honors that at the end here. So God heeds the prayer of the land and ends the famine. And then we get to the last part of the chapter, and we kind of get a little side note. And Nathan was, Nathan was kind of looking at the notes and said, oh, if we're going to deal with a famine, how fun, interesting. I said, well, there might be some giants at the end, so now we're going to talk about some giants. So who would like to read the last section here? Josiah. When the Philistines were at war against Israel, David and his servants with them went down and fought against the Philistines. And David drew faint. Then Ishmi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of his bronze spear was 300 shekels. He was bearing a new sword, thought he would kill David. But Abishai, the son of Uriah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the land of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Cushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again there was a war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jair or Dean, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Cushathite. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. So Israel defeats several giants. You've all heard of Goliath. He's the most famous. But there were others. And the Philistines and Israel were at war again. That's nothing new. That seems to happen all the time. Philistines don't like Israel. Israel doesn't like the Philistines. Um, And David went to fight. And as he's fighting, um, David and his servants went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Now, I don't know if this is David getting older and not as good a fighter as he has been before. I don't know if he's just been fighting a long time, a long battle, or if he forgot to eat breakfast or something like that. Um, whatever reason, he's growing faint here. And so an important foe shows up, this Ishi Benab, the son of Goliath. He, and again, none, none of these describe any of these guys as giants. They all say that they're the son or the descendant of Goliath. But it seems to infer, as some of them infers, uh, one of them it talks about him being of great stature. So it seems like all four of these guys were probably also large-sized. Um, Ishbi Benab, the son of Goliath, he had a bronze spear that was 300 shekels or 7.5 pounds that he was waving around. Um, hmm? That might just be the, the head of the spear. That, yeah, that might be the head of the spear. Uh, because later on it talks about the, the shaft of the spear for another one, so it might just be this uh, seven-and-a-half-pound uh, blade on the spear. Um, he thought he could kill David. He sees David not fighting very well and really struggling, and he thought, here, I can go kill the king of Israel. 
that's probably very smart of him to find a weak foe and kill him, especially if it's the king. That's going to earn you a lot of uh, fame and probably some fortune and stuff like that. And he'll be a hero in all Philistia. And so he'll he'll go down there and he'll kill the king. Well, luckily, Abishai, who is Abishai? David's nephew. nephew, yes. Yeah, and also Job's brother. He's around and he comes and saves David's life. And he comes and kills the giant. And the men of Israel see this. They see that David was almost killed. And they see that his life was saved. And they basically... Make David swear to them. They basically command them, you can't go fighting anymore, David. You're done. <laughs> You're on the sidelines. Um, you, can't, you can't do this anymore. And they give a reason, unless you quench the lamp of Israel. What does this mean, to quench the lamp of Israel? Yeah, you're, 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 the, you're the leader. You're the, you're the guy who's like, we're all looking to. We're... We're following you. You're you're the guy who God gave over all of us. If you're dead, this is going to be a problem for us. It's gonna it's gonna demoralize us. It's, we're gonna scatter. We're not gonna have anybody to lead us. You can't be you can't be throwing yourself into battle like this and getting yourself killed. So you go on the sidelines. We'll take care of the battle. You're done. Yeah. We're pulling you out. Second string quarterbacks coming in. You're not fighting anymore. So. So they pulled, they pulled David from the battle and basically forced him not to be fighting. So, so one, one down, three to go. So they have a, another battle. This one's at Gob. And Gob is a place that's 22 miles west of Jerusalem, so it's closer to the sea. Um, over here. Um, and we find this guy, Zibachai, the Hushathite. He killed an important Philistine, the Saf, the son of Goliath. There's another guy that gets killed. Uh, we don't get a lot of details on this guy, whether he had a big spear or anything like that, but he seems to be, he's the son of the giant. Then we get to another battle, another one at Gob. Gob seems to be in a very important place for battles, so good battlefield, apparently. Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, uh, the Bethlehemite, killed another important Philistine. And this one, um, the text says a brother of Goliath, but if you notice in your text, uh, the word brother is in italics, which means that it's not in the original text. So this is really killed the of Goliath. And so it's probably another son of Goliath. And later on it talks about that these four were born to the giant. So even though they added the brother of, it seems to make more sense that this is probably a, a son of Goliath. Um, and this one, he says, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. I had a pastor once who said he was preaching on this passage, and he kept on getting the two first letters mixed up as he was saying, and he kept on calling it a beaver's weem. And he couldn't get it right the whole the time he was teaching it. So it's a weaver's beam. Um, so, again, very large, which insinuates that this guy was also a very large guy. And so he was killed. And then there's a war at Gath, and Gath is actually on our map, so that's a little bit further south than probably where Gob was. Uh, a war at Gath, and this was another son of Goliath. This guy was, was a, this says he was of great stature. And he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Now, um, my daughter Bethany had been taking uh, classes at DMAC in uh, anatomy and biology and dealing with uh, genetics. 
and because she wants to be a vet tech. And she was telling us different things about genetics, like, uh, you know, about uh, dominant and recessive genes, right? Most of you know about that. Um, and she was telling us with fingers that actually six fingers is a dominant gene. I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah, it actually is. To have six fingers is a dominant gene. And I'm like, well, that's, that's interesting. That means that there's very few people with the dominant gene because you don't see a lot of six-fingered people, right? Yeah. We all have recessive genes when it comes to the number of fingers. So this guy actually had the dominant gene that he had the six fingers and the six toes. I thought that was an interesting fact that she brought up. So I just wanted to tell you that. That's, that's a dominant trait to have six fingers. So it's not, you look at that and, you, and people might say, well, the people don't have six fingers. No, that's actually, it's actually a thing. It really is a real thing. So you can trust the Bible. Anyway, what's that? I don't know if that makes them better fighters. I don't know what you do with the six finger. It'd be hard to fight, buy gloves, I would think. Where do you get six-fingered gloves to wear on your hand? No. Um, anyway, so you, he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. The Bible talks about 24 in number, which, yeah, that makes sense. And Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, so another, uh, uh, that should be David's nephew. I don't know why I put cousin, but it's David's nephew, another one of David's nephews. Uh, this one not in the army so much, so you can change that from cousin to nephew. But uh, Shemaiah was one of David's older brothers, remember? Um, so his nephew ends up killing this giant. And so overall, the summary, there are four relatives of Goliath that fell by David's hands and by his servants. And so we see that in the passage that, that it's added on here that Israel is killing a bunch of giants. Nifty. That's pretty neat. What can we learn from that? Well, let's, let's look at some of our takeaways this morning. So first one, uh, Israel made a vow with the Gideonites. And then even, I, even though they were not supposed to make this vow to them, which they weren't, God didn't command them to do that, and they kind of did that on their own without God's permission. God held them to their vow, and when Saul broke that vow, Israel had to pay the consequences of drought, and Saul's family had to pay the consequences of that broken vow. And God takes that very seriously that they said they were going to do something and they needed to follow through and do that. And God wants us to be faithful to do the things, those things we say we are going to do. Um, I, was, I was looking up some passages in the New Testament. Uh, just I was going to try to add some things on to here, and uh, none of it felt right. But you know, there's those passages where Jesus talks about like your yes be yes and your no be no. I think the idea of that is if you say yes, then let it be yes. Do it. If you say no, then let it be no. You know, don't do it. Whatever you say, do. If, if you're going to promise to do something, do it. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to keep your word. He wants you to do what you say you're going to do. He wants you to be faithful to do what you've promised to do. Now, it also talks about there not to make any, any vows. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't swear by your head. You know, just to, just to say you're going to do it and do it and just to not say you're going to do it and not do it. Um, just to be true to your word and true to the things that you say. Uh, and that's an important principle. I think we need to learn that we need to be faithful people. We need to be faithful to do what's right. And we need to be faithful to do what we say we're going to do. And so... 
I think that's an important lesson we can take away from this is that God wants us to be committed to the things that we say we're going to do. And in this case, even though Israel, God didn't originally want Israel to make this vow, they made the vow. They made the vow before God, and God held them to it. Even Saul, who was a wicked king and did wicked things, God said, well, he should have still kept the vow. And he didn't, and there was consequences for that. Um, So that's kind of my first thought. The second thought is that, uh, look here, and God is a righteous judge. Um, He requires that Israel be judged for their offense against the Gideonites. In order to satisfy God's righteous judgment, seven men of Saul's house had to die. (coughs) You know, and again, I think of this, you know, my, my first reading of this always was like, well, these guys didn't do it. Saul did it. Why did they have to die? Well, God, God's righteous judgment had to be appeased. And um, it reminds me that we are under God's righteous judgment, but we have someone who died for us in our place. And that's Christ has died in our place to satisfy God's wrath so we do not have to face God's judgment for our sin. And that's, that's an amazing thing to remember, that you know, here in this place, these men had to die because of Saul's sin. And there was nobody to take their place. They were chosen. They, they had to die. They didn't get a choice in the matter. We are under God's wrath for our sin, but we have a choice. We can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay our sin, to pay and satisfy God's wrath. And we have that choice to accept that, to believe in that, to put our faith in Jesus Christ and have him be the propitiation for our sin. And let him be the payment for that. And so we can be thankful for that. We can, we can rejoice in that. We can give God thanks that he has done that for us, that even though God is a righteous judge and his righteous wrath has to be satisfied, that God has provided that in his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's a great thing that, that this passage just reminded me of, that we don't have to be under that kind of penalty, that kind of judgment, because God has taken care of that for us. So I think that's a good thing to remember. And then the third one, start with a question. Remember when Israel would not fight Goliath? Remember that? We talked about that, I don't know, it seems like years ago. Um, because they were afraid of him, and a little shepherd boy was the only one who trusted God to face him. Remember? Nobody wanted to face Goliath. We can't do it. He's too big. He's too strong. He's going to kill us. And David was the only one who said, no, God's with us. We can do it. I fought the bear. I fought the lion. This giant's going to be just like them. Let's go do it. We can do it. And then David would be the only one to face him. Well, do you see in this passage today, who killed the giants? It wasn't David. It was a whole bunch of different guys, right? This passage today, we see at least two more giants, if not four. And I think all four of them were giants. And we see different men face these giants in battle and defeat them. And I think part of that is because David set an example for his troops. I think that, you know, they, they look and said, David defeated Goliath. These are just his kids. We can get these guys. Um, and I think David sets an example for his men that these giants could be faced and that his men were willing to follow David's example. You know, we don't have to be afraid of them. David already killed their dad. <laughs> we got these guys. And I think that's a good example that, that for us to be examples to people. We should be examples, not to kill giants, okay? Don't go out and killing giants. But we should be examples of others of faith in God that people can follow. We can be examples that when people say, well, going through a hard time in life, 
yeah, but you, you can do it. I, I've been through some hard times in life, and God's helped me through. You know, it, you, it's, it, yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. But God can give you the strength to do it. God can give you help in that. You can do it. Just trust in him. Trust in his word. Follow what he says to do. And you can be an example of that. And I, I think that's an important lesson that people look around. They look at, especially us as Christians, what, what example are we setting? And we need to set up that good example of people that trust God, that live how he wants to live. And even when we go through hard times, even when we go through difficult times, and even thinking back to the, the, the 1 Peter 3.15 passage, you know, when, when we go through those hard times, they're going to look to us um, and ask us, what is the reason for the hope that is in us? You know, do we, and they're only going to do that if they see the example in us that we're walking with God and we're doing what's right and we're, we're worshiping and pleasing him in our life. And so we need to be that example. And I think, you know, David was an example of this man. We, you, can, you can beat the giants. So we need to be an example in our Christian life of how we can walk in God's ways. So those are three takeaways I thought of. Any other thoughts or questions this morning? Gabriel. That's, um, that's something I thought about, too. It's actually something I thought about while preparing this, because I had the same kind of thought. Like, why are the sons dying for the father's sin? Um, and um, it's, a, it's a hard thing to deal with, because, again, in our sensibilities, it's like, you know, if I did something really, if I went and murdered somebody and then they put Nathan in prison for it, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Because Nathan didn't do it, um, and I think of in the, the law it talks about that God you know, visits iniquity on the family to the third and fourth generation. So you got that concept in there also. Um, so uh, there's a lot to it, but I, I think it, it's um, again um, God's judgment being appeased in this that He's the righteous judge, and that um, Saul Saul's Guilt is against this whole nation, and the nation needs to be appeased at some some way. And this is the most right righteous way to do it among that. And I I, I mean I, it's it's hard for me to work out in my mind, except that I know that God was satisfied by it because the passage tells me that God was appeased by it, and he, he lifted the famine from it, which is the whole point of the passage. So I, I, don't, I, I, I don't work it out very well in my mind. I don't understand it myself very much. Right. Uh, acceptable requirements. So like other people don't 
yeah, he, 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 did, he did use his army to do it, so there were other men involved in the murder that would have been partially responsible. Yeah, it's 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 a hard situation. Uh, again, uh, you know, but the idea that um, there's consequences for your action, and sometimes it affects the people around you also. And you know, I, that's the best I can come up with, I guess. I'd have to think on it more, but I, I had the same struggle as I was preparing this. Like, I looked at that, and I thought the exact same passage and the exact same verse that the, the son shall not be punished for the sins of his father and stuff. I'm like going, okay, how do I reconcile this? I don't know. Maybe they were responsible. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe they were part of the army, and they, they were responsible for some of it. Pastor Dean, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's it's one of those difficult things. Uh, yeah, I, I I'd have to research it more, and I think there's uh, smarter men than me that have tried and still struggle with it. Any other thoughts or questions? Go ahead and close in prayer. Jonathan, will you close us in prayer?